I got ill, I got better I'm not everything you want I got problems with my confidence And hope that just won't die without cause Hello there friends and welcome back to The Longest Night, a little show about the HBO series Game of Thrones. My name is Rob. And my name is Lizzie. And if you're a first timer, thank you for listening in. Let me give you a little bit of information about what the deal is here. I've seen every episode of Game of Thrones more times than I can count, while Lizzie is seeing all of this for the very first time. She's spoiler free and loving it, she's just here for a good time. Um, and if you are a returning listener, um, thank you very much for continuing to support the show. Thank you very much for coming back. Um, you can find us on Twitter. We are at LongestNightGOT. And we'll read all your tweets, mainly because we have nothing better to do. The music that's playing us in today is by a good friend of mine, and he has been for many years. Um, he's a sort of proggy folksy musician called Edward Thomas. Um, I will give links to where you can find all of his music in the show notes. Now, it would be kind of silly, I guess, to ignore the giant election-sized elephant in the room. And don't worry, that doesn't mean we're preaching support for the GOP. Mm. Um, It should go without saying that, obviously, we despise Donald Trump on this show. Um, But instead of speculating or theorizing about anything, because it's still up in the air as of now, um, we just want to say to our American listeners that if the next few days or weeks turn out to be kind of difficult, we just hope you stay safe. And hey, Thanksgiving's in a few weeks. So, um, Lizzie, I just want to ask, have you had any dodging and weaving to do this week? No election-related memes to avoid or anything like that? No one's been silly enough to... Um, well, actually, there was a chat yesterday at work, and someone mentioned quite a big spoiler. I think I might know of something that's coming up, and I'm, I am d- I don't know who it's between. I don't know who's involved in it, but all I know is that something happens, something very specific, and it turns out to be quite a shocking moment. Well, I will put on my best poker face, because mm. obviously everybody who's listening to this will know whether or not you have been spoiled or not, and I'll put on my best poker face and I'll just say, okay. Mm. But what is it that you think you might have been made aware of? I think possibly some sort of marriage or wedding. I don't know who it's between, and this was the point in... It was a very sort of sudden work conversation where I had to mute my headphones because I was like, oh no, oh no, oh no, I shouldn't know this. Um, but yeah, that's that's all I know, but ultimately okay, I, that... I still know too much. Okay, I don't think that's that spoilery. Okay. Just the fact that there's a wedding, that there are weddings in this show. Well, of course, if nobody um... ever got married, then... Yes, I think, no, I think, I think you're okay. I, th- I think you're all right. Okay. Um, Well, if there's nothing else, then we shall get on to the episode this week. Okay, so today we are going to be discussing Season 1, Episode 5 of Game of Thrones, which is called The Wolf and the Lion. 
Um, it was written by series creators David Benioff and Dan Weiss, and it was directed by Brian Kirk, and it first aired on May the 15th, 2011, to an audience of 2.58 million people. Now, after a couple of episodes of setup that, you know, while rewarding for viewers like me who were going back for the ninth time or whatever, might not have been so exciting or nourishing for first-time viewers like yourself, Lizzie, but what did you make of this one, The Wolf and the Lion, Season 1, Episode 5? Yeah, this was a good episode. Definitely preferred it to last week's. Because I feel like there's, um, as much as it, again, it's quite plot buildy, but it's very fast-paced. There's a lot a lot going on, even though we're only, we're only pretty much in King's Landing and a bit of the Vale and a bit of the North. But it's very, you know, focused in on the King's Landing especially. Yes, um, I agree as well. This is one of my... Um, it's not my absolute favourite episode of the season or anything like that, but um, I think it's... Like, I think I said last week that last week is the last episode of its kind, really, this season, where we're kind of... We're not completely done with setup, but I feel like we've had our first major flashpoint now with the um, the fight scene at the end. And I think mm. that once something like that happens, I think we're already at a point of no return with regards to where it can go from here and whether it calms down. Because, you know, um, Tyrion was obviously arrested last week and Jamie's feeling quite angry about that. And it feels like things are very much coming to a head between um, Ned and all of the small council. And obviously Ned has resigned his hand of the king now. And so there's mm. lots of arguments and splintering fractures in this episode that means that it's kind of impossible to turn back and it feels like there's a sense of inevitability about um, the end of the episode and that sense of inevitability actually through the episode kind of drives it a lot for me um, yeah. I also love as well it was something I noticed on my last rewatch because I last watched this episode through about two or three years ago um, like quite a lot of season one actually and something I noticed is that they cut out the two fantastical strands of the plot with Daenerys and Jon, and it focuses right in on the politics right at the centre. So it gets rid of all the stuff at the wall, it gets rid of all the stuff in Essos, and it just focuses on the political machinations of Westeros, which means that yes. it's it's it laser-focused on it. And I think it was... This is your first sort of episode where a major plotline is not in... Um, that happens quite a lot, um, especially for the first sort of six seasons where you'll go entire episodes without major characters appearing. Um, well, you say you say a major plot line's not in it. It is mentioned and it does, you know, it kind of It does inform the events, Quite an yes. important event, yeah. I suppose we've not... Um, we're more finding out that the, the, the characters in King's Landing are more sort of catching up with where we are rather than informing hmm. us of new events. Um, if you know what I mean, but um, it's yeah. No, I, I think this is a great episode because it really, like I say, it really focuses in on the kind of cold war that's beginning to boil over into a real war between various um, various parties in um, in King's Landing, and now we've had sort of our first major flashpoint with uh, Ned and Jamie's uh, little battle at the end but yeah no I, I was expecting you to come back and sort of say that this picked up the pace a little bit and we've had a couple of major incidents those are Tolly words your mother's are we playing a game family duty honour is that the right order you know it is family comes first your mother had to leave Winterfell to protect the family how can she protect the family 
if she's not with her family. So yeah, I don't know if you really took. I don't know if there's much to really talk about at Winterfell. I'm not sure what notes you've taken. Well, there's um, in the two scenes we have, which is um, Maester Lewin taking Bran through, you know, the Dothraki art of horseback archery, and then obviously the scene with Theon and Roz. But in both scenes, it's mentioned the Greyjoys' failed rebellion. Yes. And he, Theon, reacts very badly to Roz's mentioning of that. And it, you, you do sort of wonder, Ned and Catelyn are away. There's pretty much, it's he's kind of holding the fort. So is he possibly plotting something, maybe? Okay, um, well... Because he, he does seem sort of very aggrieved by any mention of the failed rebellion. And... Might he look to prove himself? Well, obviously, at the moment, we've also got Rob, who's at Winterfell. He just wasn't in this episode. Um, he's mm. he's still there at the moment. Um, and Theon and Rob are... Um, well, they have a very brotherly relationship. They really do. But um, the So, the, basically, the Greyjoy Rebellion, I think I sort of explained it a couple of weeks ago, maybe in last week's episode, that about... I don't know... T- uh, ten years ago, something like that, the Greyjoys thought, right, let's try and invade the North, and that failed. And so Theon... Mm. As um, was sort of left as like a little bargaining chip, as like a deposit maybe. Oh, sorry for trying to invade your lands. Um, <laughs> and then Theon was sort of left behind as a little bit of an apology. Um, that was the, you know they had to give up their firstborn son. Um, so no, he, you're totally right that he does feel aggrieved whenever it's brought up. Um, but obviously Theon is quite. Um, I think he likes to think of himself as very masculine and very soldier-like, and obviously any kind of affront to his personal... The way that he feels about his family or the way that he might feel about himself, he does seem to, like you say, react quite violently. I think the way that he manhandles Roz when she mentions it and stuff... I mean, obviously Roz can hold her own in this kind of situation, but I think she she wins the scene, as it were. But I think with... Theon, there is a big insecurity complex, and I think Ross just knows how to push his buttons. Um, I don't know if you have anything more on that. I don't know if you want to go further into your point about um, whether Theon might be uh, plotting something. No, I agree with your point in that he, he kind of tries to assert his dominance over Ross, but Ross just kind of brushes him off, essentially, because yeah. she knows that he's, well, he's like... Smithers, isn't he? He's he's a lackey. <laughs> I've never, never um, ever, ever heard that comparison or come up with it myself. And, like, The Simpsons and Game of Thrones are my two favourite TV shows of all time, and I can't believe I've never seen the link between the two. <laughs> yeah, but he's he's not this this great warrior. He is, you know, he's... he's um, Well, he's a ward. Yeah. It, it's a, As I think Ross mentioned it, it's kind of a cute name for what is essentially a slave. <laughs> yes. Yeah, because he has been uh, rushing around and fetching Ned's gloves uh, in the past two or three episodes and just kind of handing them over to him. And he's just kind of been there in every scene, hanging about and uh, wondering if uh, it'll be um, ever sort of included in the same way. I'm always surprised that in the first couple of episodes there wasn't more kinship between Jon and Theon uh, because they're in a similar sort of position where they're sort of members Mm. of the family but not quite. Um, yeah, but Theon is obviously quite um, quite brash, I think, with people and quite arrogant. So maybe you know, if he'd have let his guard down a little bit, maybe they'd have been a little bit closer. They do have that nice moment in the first episode where um, they have to get groomed for the king's arrival, and they're all there with their shirts off, 
um, and they have a, sort of like a little joke together while John's getting his hair cut. But that's about as close as they've been. Um, yeah, and obviously there's no John in this episode at all. No, not at all. He's, he's away at the wall. Yeah, so. everything's uh, everything at the wall has been uh, forgotten about. The eerie. They say it's impregnable. Give me ten good men and some climbing spikes. I'll impregnate the bitch. I like you. So, basically, Catelyn is taking Tyrion to the Vale. Um, they are attacked by hill tribes, and they escape, and they reach the Eyrie. Um, he was introduced last week, but we finally got to know this new character. Uh, his name is Bronn. Um... And he's introduced in sight of the Eyrie, which is the castle that they go to in the sky. We are introduced to Lysa and Robin Arryn, who are Catelyn's sister and nephew. Um, Tyrion is accused of killing Jon Arryn as well. Not just Bran, but he's accused of killing Jon Arryn as well. As he says, he has been busy. And then he's taken down below and is thrown in one of the sky cells in the Eyrie. And you don't see the sky cells much in the Eerie over the course of the show, but they are one of my favourite locations, one of my favourite little designs, because the mental processes that they force prisoners to go through, where it's like this, you can leave any time you like, but that's the only way out. Yeah, you'll leave, you can leave any time you like, but you will fall to your death. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, take your pick. And I... The Eerie is one of my favourite locations in the show. I think when you get there, it's so... They do such a good job in this episode of making it seem like the weirdest, dangerous place on Earth in, in, a, in a way that's not dangerous like King's Landing, but sort of, like, existentially dangerous. Where And it's... I find it so... It, like, everybody there is clearly so sheltered because they live so high in the clouds and so far away from everybody that they're kind of, like, detached from reality. And they yeah. do such a good job of this. And I think a lot of it is to do with the way that Sweet Robin behaves. Uh, Robin is the little boy. Um, Sweet Sweet oh, yeah. Robin's like yeah. a little nickname that he has. Where like he's eight, nine years old and he's still breastfeeding and he's so smothered and protected. And it's like, it's like, what if Buster Bluth was pure evil? And yeah. Oh God. Yeah, that's a great um, one. And yeah, no, I've always been, uh, I've always loved the introduction to the Eerie. Um, in this episode, I don't. I don't know if it kind of took you the same way. Yeah, it did. Particularly the sky cells. This is kind of because, like you say, there's a sort of mental mathematics to be done in figuring out the logistics of it. Mm. Just having these these vast open rooms overlooking mountains, and it's it's kind of you have to wrap your head around this design. It's almost like M. C. Escher esque. It's yeah, and, I. It's kind of like the opposite of... Um, I forget the name of the design now, but you know where uh, the way that they started designing prisons so that there was one watchtower in the middle and you could keep... And then they built the prison in a circle around it so you could keep sight of everybody. Um, mm. And it's kind of like the the inverse of that, where like no one really keeps an eye on them and they can go whenever they like. But obviously, as we've said, if you, it's, it's kind of like a weird inversion of the... Um, <laughs> The Eagles lyric from Hotel California, you know, the um, you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. And um, yes. it's, I like this idea that, like, prisoners, I, I definitely over the years, someone's tried to escape and have just thought, I can climb this. <laughs> well, it's either that or if you're a prisoner here, essentially, if you, um, you know, even if you do know you're innocent, just the thought of being trapped in this room forever will 
sort of drive you insane and you will just jump to your death. Yeah, if you get left in there and you get broken down mentally long enough, I imagine that's probably the option that some prisoners have taken. Yeah, of course. Particularly, like, if, if we're thinking in Tyrion's case, he's innocent. Yes. And he's in this Kafka situation where he's in a, a prison in the sky, held captive by some unstable woman and her breastfeeding eight-year-old son. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, yeah. yeah, I was just going to say, so before they get to the Vale, obviously, Catelyn and uh, Tyrion, along with Sir Roderick and Bronn, are on the East Road. Um, mm. And then they're attacked by hill tribes of the Vale. And they uh, they sort of, you know, they manage to sort of fight their way out. Um, I don't know if you took any or had any thoughts about um, the, the hill tribes that they're attacked by or that scene in particular. Yeah, we don't really get any indication of who they were, just that... It's not the first time that they've attacked. Um, no, you know, one of the it, someone asked Tyrion, it's like, is this this the first time it's happened to you? Then, well, um, the hill tribes of the Vale are basically a, a, a f- there's a few clans who just sort of live wild in the Vale, and they're mm. known to be quite dangerous, and they're known to be avoided, and you know, with good reason. Um, a few of them run down and try to kill them. Um, steal whatever they've got, maybe. But obviously, it goes quite well uh, because, I mean, obviously they lose a couple of men, but everybody, you know, the named characters sort of stay intact. Um, the Hill Tribe members are all sort of defeated, and Tyrion even gets a good uh, gets his gets a kill in with the, that that shield there. Um, mm. Oh yeah, bashes his skull in pretty much. Yes, um, there are a couple of great lines um, just before this though I think where um, Tyrion is sort of saying why would an assassin send uh, well, why would someone send an assassin to kill someone with his own blade and then yeah. um, there's a couple of other arguments and then Catelyn's sort of like, oh, you know, and Roderick's sort of saying shall I shut him up and then he goes why am I starting to make sense? It's a brilliant line. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It really is, because he knows he can poke those holes in their logic like that. <laughs> but still, it's like even, you know, in the scene when the barbarians attack, he's working against his best interests to defend Catelyn. Well, there is that little moment, isn't there, where he looks at the horses and he thinks, I could take this moment to leave, and he goes, no, stupid, stupid yeah. honour, I can't do that, so <laughs> I'm going to have to stick around. But, um, yeah, no, I um, I was. It's one of these scenes when I was sort of expecting this episode to be a bit higher in your estimations than maybe last week or the week before. This is one of the scenes that maybe I had in my mind when I was thinking about this because it is very much just like it's your first exposure to um, an actual sort of fight scene involving like two or three, maybe even five, six people on each side, like a first sort of mini battle um, in the show. Um, and I was immediately thinking, like, yeah, once that kind of happens, I feel like there's this sense of momentum, there's this sense that they're entering a strange place, there's this sense that you want to see what happens if they survive. It's maybe the first time that one of the characters that we know has been put in, like, real... Like, a bunch of characters we know, actually, have been put in, like, real genuine peril, obviously, other than mm. the um, the Catspaw um, dagger scene. Um, sorry, I should say the cat's paw is like the name of the assassin. Um, it's kind of like a name right. they have. It's like the cat's paw. So um, that's not important, really. But um, so it, just to have a sudden lurch into into action, I feel like it separates this week from the previous two 
episodes. Hmm. And there's, you do wonder if there's that doubt sort of slipping into Catelyn's mind about did Tyrion really do this? Because obviously he, uh, she takes Tyrion to um, to um, the Vale, and mm-hmm. there he's accused of killing John Arryn, but John Arryn being um, the husband of is it Lisa or Liza? Uh, Liza Arryn, yes. Liza Arryn, yeah. But it's like Mandy Rice Davis applies. She would say that. She's obviously biased in this situation. Yes, um, she's sort of. It's a bit of a sunk cost fallacy with uh, Catelyn at the moment, where like she's put all of mm. her all of her eggs in it being on it being Tyrion, and now she's got there and she's kind of doubting herself. But she's travelled all this way, <laughs> and yeah. so yeah, there is this little bit of like she's definitely realizing that maybe maybe she's wrong, but she doesn't want to be wrong. Um, because she's already committed to it so much. Um, just a little bit of background. Uh, now we're actually at the Eyrie, uh, which is spelled E-Y-R-E-I. Um, mm. Lysa and Catelyn, as I said, are sisters. So they were both Lysa and Catelyn Tully years ago. Um, Lysa was married to John Arryn, the Hand of the King, who was um, uh, who died in the first episode. And um, Catelyn was married off to Ned Stark, so obviously she became Catelyn Stark, and Lysa became Lysa Arryn. So that's their history. Um, I am curious to see what you think of Robin Arryn, who is Lord of all the Vale, despite being an eight-year-old who breastfeeds, and has presumably never well, left that yeah. castle. <laughs> no, he's presumably never left his mother's side. No. From what you can gather, it's like he's sort of he he kind of gets his mum to fight all of his battles for him. What battles he actually has, because they're up in the bleeding sky. <laughs> um, I was curious actually. What do you think? Because there is a little line in this episode where Robin Arryn says that he wants to make Tyrion fly. Hmm. Now. I'm not going to be able to answer this question on this episode because it does get answered at a later date what this flying means. But what do you think flying means? Um, well, and you know, just thinking of the sky cells, is it being essentially thrown over the edge? Um, questions will be answered at a later date. We can come back to see okay. whether you are right or wrong. Um, I don't know if you have any further notes about um, the veil beyond sort of maybe Tyrion saying that Jamie will come and fight for him if gets to this point. Well, I'm sure we'll come to that later, won't we? Uh, maybe. Yes. Yeah. Maybe not. Who knows? Do you think it's honour that's keeping the peace? It's fear. Fear and blood. Then we're no better than the Mad King. Careful, Ned. Careful now. You want to assassinate a girl? Because the spider heard a rumour. No rumour, my lord. The princess is with child. Based on whose information? Sir Jorah Mormont. Uh, we first sort of... We, you know, we open the episode and Ned is speaking with Sir Barristan Selmy while Sir Hugh of the Vale is patched up by one of the um, by the sisters who sort of deal with that kind of thing. He takes a little visit to Robert, who is apparently too fat for his armour, and Ned tells him... Ned kind of discourages him from joining the tournament. Robert's kind of teasing um, Lancel, Lannister, f- for various yeah. things. Uh, then Sir Loras, uh, Sir Loras Tyrell... Um, that's, I think that's your first introduction to Sir Loris, actually. Um, it is, it is. Yes, and he jousts with the Mountain and wins. And then the Mountain decides to behead his horse and storm off. Uh, after trying to take the Knight of the Flowers, Loras Tyrell's life, um, at which point the Hound steps in and defends him. 
Um, Varys then tells Ned that John Arryn was poisoned by something called Tears of Lease. Um, Arya is chasing cats around the dungeons where she sees Varys and Illyrio from the first episode, Roger Allen, um, yep. plotting something or other. And then Arya goes and tells Ned about what that conversation... Well, she, she gives him the bits of information she can remember. Um, Varys and Littlefinger have a little sort of war of wor- words in the throne room. Um, Yorin has reached King's Landing all the way from the wall. Um, and he tells Ned that Tyrion has been arrested by Kat. Um, Renly and Loras have a quiet scene where they discuss a few things while shaving Renly's chest. And Loras starts to convince him that he can be king. Cersei and Robert have a conversation about their history together and the coming war maybe with the Dothraki and Robert's history with Lyanna Stark. Ned refuses to go along with the assassination attempt on Daenerys and he resigns as Hand of the King and he tries to leave King's Landing but is convinced by Peter Baelish to meet the last person who Jon Arryn spoke to, who was the sex worker with the baby. Uh, so he ends up in Littlefinger's brothel and he's inquiring about Robert's bastards and following John Arryn's footsteps. And then outside the brothel, Jamie attacks Ned for Catelyn arresting Tyrion. And breathe. And so, breathe. <laughs> yes. Um, so we'll go right back to the start. We'll talk about the tournament first and little scenes with um, uh, Robert where he's kind of teasing Loras and thinking about taking part in the tournament and decides not to. Um, these are some of, some of the funniest scenes in the whole show. Like, best. Oh, oh yeah. Mark Addy is just wonderful. Like, he is such an iconic presence in all of. Like, for Game of Thrones fans, he's a huge deal. Because there are some lines in this that have been memed to death. Like, just the go find the breastplate stretcher, and <laughs> your mother was a dumb whore with a fat ass, and there's just. He is just a he's just a walking joke in the best way. Like he's just he's he's like a walking stand-up routine. He's fantastic. I feel like not only are the scenes funny, but they're also a brilliant, 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 and probably the best example of a subversion of how a king is supposed to be behaved, where he's so self-aware that he's king. Mm. And there's because that scene where he sort of he's sort of about to walk out of the tent. With like that weird vest top thing on that's not quite covered <laughs> with anymore. his with his gut just hanging out. Yes, like um, and he's he sort of he's very much aware of this and what a king is supposed to be and how he's supposed to look and he's just laughing in the face of it the whole time. And yeah, he's sort of you know exercising his power in ways that make him basically an ass, like with the way that he's treating Lancel Lannister in this episode, but. My God, is it funny? Like it's just, it, it is, is so so funny. I, d- I don't know if you felt the same way. Well, yeah, but we see later in the episode that it's kind of um, he, as much as he's laughing off the ridiculousness of all this pageantry and um, you know being a king. Ultimately, he's kind of. I feel like he's hiding a lot of pain and a lot of anxiety and a lot of paranoia, even. Yes, I think that one thing, just just a little thing, that scene between Cersei and um, Robert in this episode, which is one of my favourite scenes in the whole show. I absolutely it's love it. It's beautiful, isn't it? Really, really it's great. so good. That is a non-book scene. Really? It's a non-book scene, and it adds layers and layers to Robert Baratheon's character, and it shows, so much. It shows just how much the 
creators and writers really understood the characters they were writing for in the books because this turns that scene alone when measured up against the hilarity of how funny um the earlier scenes in this episode are with robert and it turns him into like a really tragic character and it turns cersei and robert's marriage into like this really sort of like long awful poem where like they've kept this they've sort of kept a relative piece of the kingdoms together but what cost does it come at yeah of and, course. and yeah yeah it's like robert appears to have everything he's got money he's got power property you know hordes of men at his, at his side but he's a he's a broken useless man he's drinking all the time and he's reminiscing about a lost love from over a decade ago all while he's his wife has been suffering through the self-pity. Yeah, it makes it all seem very hollow. Yes. Everything that they have. And I I mean, I know we sort of started off by talking about um, the scenes where there's the tournament and everything, but I think, you know, because the Cersei and Robert scene is so kind of, ironically, I don't mean this pun, divorced from the rest of the episode. It's, mm. it's kind of in isolation. Um, there are so many wonderful lines in this scene as well. One of my favourites that's always, always just... It, it comes up quite a lot as well in the fandom as being quite a famous line, which is the um, which is the bigger number, five or one. And the way that he justifies that one is the bigger number by sort of clenching his fists together. And it means that if there's just one, then it means that everybody's heading in the same direction. And I love, 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 love the um the little point that he makes that since they actually you know it when they weren't when robert's army and when his allies weren't in power they had one target which was the mad king and that was the one focus and they needed to overthrow him and get rid of him but since he's yeah. gone all of their intentions have kind of been scattered in a million different directions which is why there is this it doesn't look like it from the outside but from the inside we know there's so much division here and there's oh, yeah. so much arguing and there are so many little mini factions and lots of spying and whispering and all this uh, as he says what is it um backstabbing and scheming and arse licking and money grubbing and it's all of this like it all of this glory has just kind of withered away over the years and it's turned into what i imagine it really is which is just once you're at the top you suddenly become the most vulnerable you've ever been because oh, yeah, ev- and- everybody's out to get you all of a sudden that's right, you, you suddenly can't trust anybody, so now you've got a, um, a suspicion of the Dothraki-Targaryen alliance, you've got suspicion of the Starks, you've got suspicion of your family, essentially, of the Lannisters themselves. Yeah, and this is the problem with marrying all of these families together, which is that, you know, because obviously you have a Baratheon ma- married to a Lannister, you've got, a, in this show already, you've got a Baratheon married to a Lannister, which is Robert and Cersei, you've got a Stark married to a Tully, which is Ned and Cat. And you have all these other sort of... And obviously you have a Tully married to a, an Arryn um, with Lysa and obviously John is dead now. But um, so... And there were all these, like, happy marriages, you think. But then what if one person in one of the families decides to go to war against the other and then it becomes a whole Romeo and Juliet situation and it becomes this, like... It becomes tragic sort of by default, really. And, you know, what if the Baratheon king is still in his heart you know, in love with a woman who's been dead for a very long time, and yeah, the marriage and who was who was murdered, 
Yeah, exactly. And like, yeah. so, yes, by, a, you know, so there's all this, like, it, the, the wheel begins to turn. All of these yep. families and all of the games that they play. And this is, again, this is what I love about this episode where after, you know, a few episodes of setup, which I've enjoyed and everything like that, I feel like this is the first one where, like, you get an example and you get a clear show that there are just too many plates spinning for them not to come you know for for things not to go wrong like there's just too much to maintain and two people who hate each other who can't be in a room with each other for more than five minutes are are holding it all together and even they know that's a joke yep all it takes is one domino exactly um absolutely just adore I, i totally adore that scene it's one i go back and watch quite a lot like, I may have seen this show through five or six times just watching the episodes, but in terms of watching clips from the show, I there are some clips I've seen hundreds and hundreds of times, and that is one of them. I totally adore that scene. It's a kind of, it is a totally brilliant character scene, and it was one that wouldn't have even made it had HBO not come back and said, your episodes are too short. It's yeah. it's amazing that scenes like that can come up. There, there are a couple in this episode actually, um, where there's the conversation between Littlefinger and Varys that they had to write. Um, there's the one between Loras and Renly that they had to write that in as well to pad the episodes out. And they're all like, yeah, no, they're, they're fantastic. I really love them. Um, so speaking of uh, Sir Loras, actually, he jousts with the mountain and wins. Mm-hmm. And then the mountain comes off his horse, then kills his horse, and then just as he's about to kill Loras Tyrell, the hound jumps in. Um, I don't know if you have any notes about the tawny. I don't know how you felt about maybe returning to what was essentially the bulk of last week's episode. It kind of, it felt like it started in a funny place, kind of like midway through the tournament for me. But I don't know if you have any feelings about the tournament. Yeah, we're back to the tournament. I I assume the tournament ended last week with yeah. the you know the brutal murder of Sir Hugh of the Vale. Hmm. Well, I say murder, you know the the kind of stabbing through the neck, the tragic accident, or the tragic accident, Lizzie. God, tragic get, accident. Get get the party line right. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know if you have any thoughts about this week's uh, tournament, as if it's sort of like uh, match week two of this tournament. <laughs> Yeah, it seems that um, Sansa has her eye on Solaris Tyrell, but am I to assume that Solaris Tyrell is gay? Uh, you are correct to assume that, yes. Or, okay. or at the very least bisexual, um, at the very, very yes. least. But um, yes, he is rather, rather close with um, Renly. And Jesus, that scene it like with them shaving and stuff like that, there is a level of... I, d- I, d- I don't quite know what it is, but like it's very strangely erotic it is i think um i mean i say strangely erotic maybe if i was into men i wouldn't find it strangely erotic i would just find it erotic but like and there's also a level of tension because there's just i mean obviously they're into each other but like there is a knife at play and i've never shaved my chest before but i don't think i'd want to do it because like (laughs) it just it's too close to just it's too it's too close it's too close to lots of very sensitive and vulnerable parts of my body and I would not want to do it and so while you're watching them and you're like oh god don't don't please don't cut him please don't hurt him and then like oh god I hope he, I hope he's good at this and at the same time I think the lighting in this scene makes their bodies glow yeah this... they're almost sort of angelic yeah particularly very um Solaris he's got that long flowing hair and those soft features and 
Yeah. Um, and and like you say, Ooh, a, bit, the, a bit hot the under the collar here, Lizzie. A bit hot under the collar. <laughs> <laughs> it's far too early for this. <laughs> um, so Loris is shaving him with, like you say, a knife, and obviously there's no shaving cream. It looks like he's shaving with peanut butter or something. <laughs> like, yeah, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> no, it's like yellowy brown. What is that? <laughs> I think it's a form of shaving cream, but we'll never know. Um, I think it's just no. what they use. I like the idea of it being peanut butter, though. That's that's kind of hilarious. <laughs> but obviously, it's just all um, sticky and yeah. Obviously, they. Did, did, sorry, go on. I was going to say, did you mention that this scene was written for the show? Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. And again, there's a little layer being added to Renly here that Loris is kind of grooming him to think that he's power because at the start of for, he's kind of grooming him for power because at the start of the scene. Loris, uh, Renly's like, I'm fourth in line, don't be silly. And then by the end of the scene, it's like, oh, maybe I could do this. And yeah. maybe I could be king one day. Maybe I should be king. Maybe I'm a better king. And it's quickly, it's amazing how quickly it all sort of, it, people can be turned around. And what we know about Robert in this episode as well, in that he's kind of, as much as he's still in power, he's suspicious of everybody because, well, he's, you know, he, he loses. The, the king's hand he loses Ned yeah um, and he's still convinced that there's going to be a war but who is the war between we don't know but he suspects you know the Targaryen Dothraki alliance yes he's got all of these these moving parts going on and you you weigh those all up and you think he's not the sort of person you want leading you into a war no um, which I think is starting... Maybe it's a thought that is starting to spread through his small council who are maybe sort of... They all clearly have their own agendas. And yeah. apart from Pycelle, whose agenda just seems to be hanging around. But um, yes. Varys and Littlefinger, their scene in this episode... Um, it gets a little bit irritating at points, I've got to be honest. Like, I do like that scene a fair bit, but there's lots of, like, ugh, just the endless back and forth, like, when did I last see you? Oh, not before I last saw you. Oh, but why I last <laughs> saw you before you saw me? And it's, like, this stupid, like, it, it feels a little bit like, I don't know, like some kind of Monty Python sketch that's just, like, this absurd comedy. Um, but everything around it and what it all represents and what it all means is stuff I absolutely love. I'm not quite sure why they're having such what is supposed to be a very secretive conversation in a very echoey room so that all of their voices just boom around the place. But I think, you know, they want to keep their eye on um, the Iron Throne and the throne room and all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, I, I, I get why they staged it there. But at the same time, it is a little bit like, oh, come on. <laughs> it's, it's very exposition-y, isn't it? It's like Tinker Tailor, Soldier Stark, you know? Yes. Um, all of these, like, spies just sort of interacting and gossiping. But, God, this scene was a nightmare to take notes of because they they throw so many bits of, um, you know, exposition into about span of a minute. Yeah, it seems. There's also the other scene, which I'm sure we'll come to, with um, with Arya in the dungeons when she overhears the conversation between Varys and Illyrio. Yes. Um, yeah, Varys doing a lot of sneaking around in this episode and a lot of quiet chatting. I think the dungeons and the catacombs would have been a better place to go for the conversation between Varys and Littlefinger. But Surely. never mind. Um, he does have a conversation, as you say, with Illyrio Mapatis, who has travelled across the narrow sea. 
and mm-hmm. he is plotting something. So, what is he plotting? What is he plotting? Do you think? Well, yes. it's kind of... Varys is suggesting that war is, you know, imminent, but Illyrio is less sure of that, you know, at least while Daenerys is pregnant. Yes. So Illyrio says, what good is war now? We're not ready. We need time. Khal Drogo will not make his move until his son is born. To which Varys says, delay, you say, move fast, I reply. (laughs) It's, It's almost like Varys is... He's kind of bloodthirsty in a way. He is a very duplicitous character, isn't he? Very. Um, he, again, they, I mean, I feel like maybe they should, I don't know, check for children in large dragon schools before they have these conversations, but obviously <laughs> yeah, that, that would be far too logical and far too silly, and I don't often look for logic in stories because I feel like the second you start looking for logic in fictional stories then well the whole thing falls apart and so I yeah no it's a quite a cute little conversation between the two and like I uh her interpretation of it is quite hilarious because she, she doesn't understand any of it but she knows she's heard something potentially lethal but she doesn't know what and yeah she has to sort of have well I've heard a I've heard a... It's like the... Um, funnily enough, I was watching an episode of The Simpsons last night, um, the one where the Flanders family um, adopt... Um, well, they, they have to foster Bart and Lisa for a little while. And Ned kind of phones up Reverend Lovejoy in a panic when Bart and Lisa have said that they're not baptised. And he, he phones up in a panic and he's like, Ah, diddly, a doodly, a Bart, Lisa, a doodly, like that. And, and like he knows that he's heard something terrible and he needs to report it, but he doesn't quite know how to get the information out and I is quite similar where it's like she knows she's heard two men talking very 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 suspiciously and quietly about something or other and they've mentioned the word war and the word savage and she goes um (laughs) and in the end it kind of splurges out into sort of like word salad but um that yeah and I I saw the baby and the baby looked at me (laughs) Yes, no, exactly. Yeah, God, who knew there were so many parallels between Simpsons and Game of Thrones? But um, <laughs> other than the later episodes that the Simpsons eventually did, where they referenced Game of Thrones, but we don't talk about those. Um, yeah, they don't exist. No, they don't. Um, so that's all sort of part of Ned's journey in this episode, where he kind of carries on a little bit with last week's kind of like mystery tour, little detective drama. But I feel like there's more danger and threat to it this week it's not just him kind of skulking around looking for clues like there's actual there's a bit more substance i think to the scenes that he's involved with this week where varis tells him it's it, again it's this it's like ned's not necessarily looking around in, in in the dark for clues anymore like varis has stepped out into the light and just told him that hmm. um john aaron was poisoned so there you go lizzie there's your suspicions confirmed by the way that john aaron yep. didn't just die he was killed and he was poisoned. Um, and now we need to find out who by and why. Um, so, although jo- um, Varys says that it was the hue of the veil. Yes, um, but I suppose, um, you know, who paid the hue of the veil to do this? And also, can you believe Varys? Like you say, he's a very exactly. duplicitous character. Yes. No, precisely. Um, and, uh, I mean, as you've seen, it's it's Ned has made, I think... 
maybe, I mean, what do you think? What do you think about Ned's judgment with trusting Varys and Littlefinger here? Well, it's convenient to blame Sir Hugh of the Vale because he's dead. You know, there's, <laughs> yeah, there's nothing you can himself. really do about that. Um, oh, God, it's like they're, they're both spinning webs and the webs are kind of getting crossed over and nobody knows really what to believe. You know, what's the truth? What's gossip? What's made up just to suit their own ends? Mm. No, I, 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 like, totally, absolutely. And like you say, it is very convenient that they would blame someone who cannot defend himself. Yeah. Um, now, now, when that's kind of out of the way a little bit, Ned kind of refuses to go along with something. So he goes to a small council meeting and it's revealed, obviously, that Daenerys, the whore, is pregnant, which is another famous Robert Baratheon line. Um, he refuses to go along with the assassination of Daenerys. And yeah. he resigns as Hand of the King quite quickly. He's only been there three episodes and he's already shirked his duties. <laughs> um, did you expect anything to be... Did you expect these kinds of developments to happen so quickly? No, it's very soon, isn't it? Yeah. But but I I can understand Ned's... Um, you know Ned's refusal to do this because oh, he doesn't totally. really ha- doesn't really have any um, incentive to believe that oh this son will be born and then it's it's all gonna go to shit. It's like well based on what you know well, it's, a, it's paranoia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, paranoia yeah. essentially um, because yeah he knows that Robert is prone to that, especially with Targaryens because he hates them. <laughs> so oh, yeah. Um, yeah, no. Um, yeah, no, I, I like this scene a fair bit, and there's a lot. There's a horrible line by Littlefinger um, where he says, "Well, if you're in bed with an ugly woman, you just get it over with," and it's like, "Oh Christ, what an analogy!" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, there's nobody really sort of sticking up for Daenerys here. They all sort of, even people like Renly, and you know, the, we kind of like at the moment. He's very much like, "Oh, just get it done with. Have it, have it done. What problem is yeah. she?" And it's this idea that Daenerys is disposable rather than... Again, but, you know, because we're kind of, in a way, with the Daenerys scenes so far in this show, we don't have any in this episode, but with the Daenerys scenes so far in this show, we're kind of getting to know as it would be if we were, from Robert and Ned's perspective, or Renly's perspective, or whatever, the enemy. We're kind of getting to know her, and so if we'd never met her, and it was this idea that, like, oh... Yes, this woman with a dangerous army is given uh, is about to give birth or whatever, and we'd sort of you know we wouldn't be okay with it, but I think we'd be, it would be less problematic to us. I think we would be, we'd be sort of like oh yes, the necessary things that must be done to save a war, and I think Pycelle even says you know is it not more humane for Daenerys to die now than have tens of thousands die later, and it's like the trolley problem, um, mm. and. I think that the fact that we've gotten to know Daenerys means that it's like, no, no, don't do that. But, like, when, obviously, if if we'd never met Daenerys and it was just all focused on Westeros so far, it'd be a bit more like, oh, well, you know, maybe it has to be done. It's not nice, but it wouldn't reflect on them so badly, I don't think. But even then, even if we hadn't seen Daenerys, uh, from what we've seen... He's so focused on this threat of the um, the Targaryen Dothraki alliance that he's not seeing the war going on in his own family in King's Landing. Yes, 
Um, that we see a lot of in this episode. Yeah, very, very distracted. Um, yeah. Part of me, I don't know, maybe thinks that he's very much aware of this, and so he's kind of using the um, the Targaryen stuff across the Narrow Sea um, to sort of maybe pull his focus like, away deliberately. Yeah, to wrestle back some sort of control. Yeah. What do you make of Ned's decision to resign? Where do you think it'll... I mean, obviously, there is another event that we'll talk about, but with regards to the relationship between Robert and Ned, where do you think that might go now that Mm. Ned has resigned? And Cersei even refers to it as kind of losing Ned Stark. I I don't know where this is going to go. I I can't say, because I'd almost get the feeling that they might sort of make up somehow, but I, I don't know how that would even happen. Okay. Um, it's it's impossible to kind of predict what you know what's going to happen. Does Ned just go back to Winterfell or? Yeah. Well, he might be quite a hard, kind of hard for him to ride a horse at the moment because he goes to Littlefinger's. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, he goes to Littlefinger's brothel, and mm. he is inquiring about Robert's bastards and um, finds out that King Robert had a, a a child with a woman that he slept with and. And then never called again. Um, and she's waiting for Robert to turn up. <laughs> she's gonna be waiting for a long time. Um, oh yeah, because he he ain't never he ain't never gonna come and visit her. Um, and then Ned leaves the brothel, and there's a bunch of Lannister soldiers outside. And Jamie rides in all proud and on his horse, and he says, "Hey, your wife's arrested my brother. Give him back." And yep. They decide to try and... Well, at first, the plan is to take Ned hostage as, like, a bit of a bargaining chip. But then it kind of goes awry from there, and Jamie kind of has to improvise. Um, we do have a named character death in this scene that's quite sad. Um, Jory Cassell is... Yeah, Jory gets stabbed through the eye. He's gone. Yes. Oof, um, horrible. So, and then Jamie attacks... Ned in the end because he sort of has to and then one of Jamie's soldiers stabs him through the leg with a spear and then Jamie stabs him uh, well I don't know if he stabs him I think he punches it... him like he kind right, of so he... like hits him over the head so he, cut, he sort of knocks him out because um, he's I sort see. of like Jamie's so proud that Jamie wanted to be the person to do that um, mm. to sort of not kill Ned but disable him yeah because if if he kills Ned then Tyrion is dead yes the bargaining chip is says. gone yeah so yes. Um, so, what notes have you got on this scene? I think this is one of the more intense scenes we've had so far in the whole show. Actually, yeah, it's very intense, and I take it this was the only sight of Jamie in the episode. Yes, yep, the only time he turns up, and it's to fight Ned. Yep, and you know Ned holds his own, but ultimately, it kind of overwhelms him, I suppose. Um, yeah, it's. Oh, I don't know. There's again a lot of moving parts here, and kind of Jamie is trying to get Tyrion back because Tyrion's been accused of a crime that Jamie had done. Mm-hmm. And you wonder if Ned can get sort of, you know, get the hint that maybe Tyrion wasn't behind this. It might <laughs> yeah. be. You might have to sort of. Maybe look at your immediate surroundings and gather the information yourself. That you know, this is he's not the so, he's not the person you need to worry about. It's it's Jamie. 
Yes, um, well, we've not really had much of uh, Ned's thoughts on whether Tyrion actually did it. He just sort of is going along with what appears to be law and procedure. Mm. So I I kind of... It's, it's hard to tell what Ned really thinks about it, but I think that... Yeah, I think he's been given a bit of a warning uh, in this episode with regards to um, who the more dangerous Lannisters are and who the ones who are sort of willing to follow you know, follow their sword, basically, um, hmm. and the ones who are less willing to do that. And, yeah, you know, maybe Jamie would have just kind of taken him prisoner rather than put a, a spear through his knee or whatever it was um, uh, in the end of the episode. But obviously that was one of the Lannister guards and not Jamie. And there is something slightly... I mean, Jamie, as we've seen in this fight, is not one to shy away from using slightly underhanded, dishonourable methods of fighting because he kind of sneaks in the kind of sneak attack with the knife into Jory's head. Um, But there is something about stabbing a man in the back, which is like against the honor code, if you will. And Jamie's like, oh, God's sake, it was my job. You know, that he was mine. You know, why did you take him? And so Jamie just kind of punches the guy. That's what he's known for. Yes. Known for being a a backstabber, both figuratively and literally. (laughs) Who knows? Maybe there's a kind of... I don't know, maybe there's a little bit of a parallel drawn there that he's seen in his head, um, and he thinks whenever that happens, he goes, oh, oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so he sort of, um, it brings up flashbacks for him. Um, so then Jamie rides off and he's like, my brother Lord Stark, I want him back. Um, and we don't know We don't know if Jamie's done this sort of on his of his own volition or if this has been ordered by Robert. Because Robert says to Ned as he, you know, as he walks out of the meeting... I will have your head on the spike. Um, well, I would say ordinarily that um, questions will be answered at a later date, but mm. um, it I, I will just sort of answer you here that it is something that Jamie has done of his own volition. Um, okay. The stuff that Robert was saying, like, you know, go run back to Winterfell, blah, 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 I'll have your head on the spike, etc., etc. It's all kind of hot air. It's just kind of, he's just venting. And right. he's angry sure. and mad and stuff. Um, he's not actually um, plotted anything. Uh, this is purely personal between the Starks and the Lannisters, um, where Tyrion's been arrested. Word has got south that Tyrion's been arrested. And so Jamie has found out, and Jamie has decided to try and get Ned as a, like I say, as a bargaining chip so that maybe Tyrion can be released. Well, as much as Robert doesn't know it, this is the war. It's not the Targaryens and the Dothraki. It's this. It's the Starks and the Lannisters. Yes. It's already happening right under his nose. Yep. I yep. Yeah, I think that's a very good place to, to leave it. Um, so, I have to ask, this week, who is your loser? Who is the person with the shape of the L on their forehead? <laughs> In a sense, it's Robert. It's okay. like this episode is like the ballad of Robert Baratheon. Oh, that's a beautiful, beautiful way of describing this episode. Yeah, he, like I say, he's, he's mocked for being overweight. He loses his hand because of his paranoia. Then he has to have a talk with his, his long-suffering wife where they both accept that it's a loveless marriage that's doomed to fail and the one woman he truly loved died over a decade ago. And, and, you know, elsewhere, his brother is starting to wonder if he might do a better job of mm. being king. He's got everything to lose at this point, and in this episode, he does lose a lot. He loses 
he loses a friend, he loses pride, he loses, you know, he almost loses his mind because of all, you know, of all these moving parts and he can't control any of them. All right then, wonderful. And who is your winner this week? This was actually kind of a tough one. It's a it's, Yeah, harder to pick, yeah, isn't it? <laughs> I'd say it's a toss-up between Ned and Tyrion because they're both working against their best interests and, you know, doing the honourable thing despite it putting them in danger and not really benefiting them in the long run, which is Ned stepping down as the Hand of the King and Tyrion defending Catelyn against the Barbarians. Okay. So... Who would you like to go for out of the two of them? I'm going to go with Ned. Okay. That's... that's Okay, yeah. That's the first mention, by the way, for Ned Stark, for winner of the week. Yeah. Um. So we've had Tyrion in week one, Arya Stark slash kind of Nymeria in week two, mm. uh, Jon Snow in week three, Daenerys Targaryen in week four, and now in week five, we've got... Ned Stark as the winner of the week. So next episode, next week, is A Golden Crown, which is season one, episode six. Uh, the music that is currently playing is out right now, as I said at the start, is a good friend of mine. He's called Edward Thomas. I'm going to put all of the links to his music in the show notes. And we will be back next week for A Golden Crown. And speaking of A Golden Crown, you don't give presidents a golden crown, but hopefully by the time we're recording that episode, we will actually know who the next president of the United States is going to be, and we just hope that it's not Donald Trump. Fingers crossed. Fingers, both fingers, and I can't... Well, I can kind of cross my fourth toe with my third toe, kind of, (laughs) but not quite. So, yes, we'll be back for then, and see you very soon. Okay, see you soon. Take my dreams Making it work